Open your Bibles to John chapter 10. There's the uh, first 18 verses is where we're going today. We are wrapping up our series, Love Walked Among Us, today. Uh, the last 14 weeks uh, have been fairly simple in our um, objective, and that is to look through these narratives at the story or the picture of how Jesus loved, and then to just try to really ask God to create in us that kind of love. We want to be people who love like Jesus. That's the whole intention of the this series. We have seen something really practically in how Jesus actually demonstrated his love for individuals in this, uh, the way he always had his head up as he walked around and lived his life. He saw people and he, he was moved with the compassion for people. It was tangible for him. He, he bore up under accusation for his relationships with others. He would say no to himself. Um, he was open to interruption. All these wonderful ways you can kind of write a script on, well, do that, and let's try that, and let's be that. Um, the last three weeks, however, we took a shift in our discussion of, of these narratives of Jesus' love, and we were looking at the kind of events from, from the beginning of his suffering all the way to the cross, like the way it gets really most tangible to see, <coughs> excuse me, love lived out like that. We've seen the servanthood and the sacrificial, suffering love of Christ as he marches his way um, to, the, to the cross. Now, what we're going to talk about today is the cost of love. And I, I'm going to put a condition, and it's probably more for me, and it might not matter to you. But I'm, ha- I'm having a little bit of a challenge in these last three weeks, looking specifically as Jesus marches to the cross and going, okay, go and emulate that. And beyond the narrative that love costs us something, that, that I get, but I have a hard time looking at these narratives without getting really myopic at me being the reason why he's suffering those things. Like seriously, I, as opposed to going, well, let's just go reflect that kind of love to people, that would be noble, but when it's all said and done, I'm looking at him on a cross, I go, oh, wait a minute, the only thing I can think about is I'm the one that put him there. And I'm having a real hard time adjusting my thoughts. Not that we shouldn't, but just to be honest, there are a couple of key players in this wonderful suffering story. I'm one. You're one. I'm the rebellious one. I'm the blind man. I'm the Samaritan woman. I'm the sinner. I'm the one far from God. I'm the broken one. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the creator and sustainer of life. He is the savior redeemer. He is that. And in these stories where we get closer and closer to Jesus' suffering, that just seems to start to glow like like hyper color for for me. So it's kind of hard for me to see the ultimate picture of love and turning it into something to try to emulate versus something that drops me to my knees and makes me want to worship, to be really fair. So if you feel that tension, uh, I, I understand. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't. I look at this and go, yeah, we love the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors ourselves. But even in our story of, of, of today, you're going to see that these narratives really have a primary effect on us, and, and that is that it's to have us love Jesus. Now, the outflow is loving others, but the preeminent point of all these things is to put him on display, make much of him, worship him. And so that, that I think will be just as a setup, partly and maybe mostly what we experienced this morning. John 10 in these 18 verses highlights one particular thing, one major thing. Jesus is the good shepherd. It's a wonderful truth. I think for us culturally, we need some context to really wring out from it the, the depths of that truth. There are several definitive statements that Jesus makes in these 18 verses. 
I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. I have other sheep and I have authority. Those are really strong statements and they all appear in these 18 verses. So what we're gonna do is kind of break down this text in like three particular paragraphs and maybe we'll bump into these definitive statements as we do that. Before we do though, however, I think we need some perspective just to get in the context of sheep and shepherds, unless you're a shepherd by trade, and I don't know too many of those in our church, um, some of this stuff needs some external help for us. There was a book written some 50 years ago by a real shepherd talking about the nature of sheep. I think it might help why we can understand this illustration. He would suggest that sheep are utterly helpless Uh, Among the animal kingdom, sheep seem to have come out on the short end of the stick. Uh, From all accounts, they are of limited intelligence. When it comes to finding food, they are definitely uncreative. As creatures of habit, they will follow paths through desolate places, even though not far away is excellent, uh, excellent forage. Sheep are also given to listless wandering. They are definitely at the lower end of the intelligence scale. He said that twice now, so just make that stick here. Um, there are even accounts of their walking into open fire. Shepherds confirm that they are timid and stubborn. They can be frightened by the most ridiculous things, though at other times nothing can move them. They're absolutely defenseless. There is no way sheep can defend themselves at all. Of all the animals in the animal kingdom that need husbandry or care, professional care, sheep are the most needy of all. Anybody wondering why sheep is the way the Bible describes us? Low intelligence, uh, listless wandering, running into harm's way, can't defend herself. You get the picture. That helps us get at least warmed up to why these particular illustrations are, are coming from Jesus. There's another helpful thing, I think, to our understanding, and that would be to, to get ourselves out of the Western mindset in 2019 into a first century shepherd mindset. Uh, maybe you do this like I do. When I instinctively think of herds or animals, I think, well, the way you move them is you either have old school horses or you use four by fours or trucks or whatever, and you drive the herds where you want them to go. And you see that. You, if you watch anything on TV or documentaries, you'll see cowboys or sheep herders driving their sheep. Well, in the first century Palestine, they didn't drive their animals. They led their animals. The shepherd would always go in front of the sheep, and the sheep would simply follow. Okay? So just get that in your mindset. Totally different aspect of the role the shepherd would play with his sheep. Um, The other thing that I think is interesting is that because most sheep were raised for their wool, not for their flesh, so the commodity is totally different, shepherds would know their sheep for years and years and years become very familiar with their sheep, very attached to their sheep. They would name their sheep. So now just put that into your mindset, knowledge and history and leading them, not pushing them. That's the kind of shepherd that Jesus is describing here. So with that in mind, let's, let's dig in. Three particular pictures of the good shepherd. One is that Jesus, the shepherd, knows his sheep. Two is that Jesus, the shepherd, provides for his sheep. And the third and, and last one is that Jesus, the shepherd, loves his sheep. That's what he tells us here. Let's deal with the first one. Verses one through six, Jesus knows his sheep. It says here, John says, truly, truly, I say to you that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. 
When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they'll flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. For us, again, context is everything. In, in that first century kind of world, there were two, two particular corrals or pens that uh, kind of are referenced. Both of them show up in this particular passage. But what Jesus is dealing with in the, in the first one is different than what you might think. Shepherds out in the field, out in the wilderness, and they kind of form whatever they've got to hold their sheep in. That's not what he's talking about. In, in most communities in Palestine, First century Israel, they had um, communal corrals. So multitudes of shepherds would bring their sheep and they would hire a professional gatekeeper to watch the corral and everybody would put their sheep in there. And that would, I suppose, provide rest for the shepherd or whatever. But um, that whole particular uh, type of corral is what Jesus is referring to here. You need to picture this story. Jesus comes up to the corral the gatekeeper knows the shepherd. They're familiar with each other because the, the gatekeeper has been hired by that shepherd. He walks in among, among the masses. Some are his sheep, many are not his sheep. And he simply makes that familiar sound that the shepherd does. He whistles like the shepherd does or whatever. Something that the sheep are familiar with and they all line up and follow the shepherd out of the crowd. So you get this picture? Some are his. Not all are his. And his voice is clear to his own, and so they, he leads them out. There's some wonderful depth in there. So let me just give a, a spiritual stamp for, for us in using that story, and that is this. Sheep always hear their master, and they always follow his lead. There's a spiritual absolute in just the analogy that Jesus uses of the way sheep will follow and the way the shepherd will always lead. Let me give you some context even further to explain about the sheep and the shepherd because if you're just reading this like through John and you read through 9 and chapter 10, you're a little, maybe a little confused. Why, why does Jesus jump to this subject here after what we just saw in John 10? So let me give you John 10 and lead you into John 9 so you, or 9 to get you to 10 to explain to you why he starts talking about sheep and, and shepherds. If you will call... A story that uh, happens, a true story that happens in chapter 10, there's a man born blind. He's a man at this point in time, and so he's, uh, he is living by begging. He hangs around the edges of society with his hand out, hoping that someone would meet his needs. And his disciples, is walking with Christ, they see this man, and they have a question, a theological conundrum. Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? Because clearly this blindness is judgment of God. Everyone in the culture thought that. If you, if you were a sinner, you're probably why you're sick and affirmed. And so this blind man was now being judged, had been judged his whole life in that culture. And so they asked Jesus the big question. Jesus says, nobody sinned. This man's blind because God's going on display. I mean, there's a sermon there we don't have time for. But ultimately... Jesus says, he didn't sin. Parents didn't sin. This man is a display case for the glory of God. And he says to the man, he, he makes mud, spits in the ground, makes mud, puts it in his eyes, tells him to go wash himself at the pool of Siloam, and he does. And you know the story. He can see, um, and he's healed. Well, let's fast forward in that event. That, that's a big deal. A permanently blind from birth man now sees, sends the whole culture in, in a firestorm. The leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, see this thing and say they go nuts. 
because they cannot explain away the miracle, although they tried, and they refused to give glory to God, and they wouldn't. And so in that particular conundrum in their mind, in their blindness, they start to play tug-of-war with this man's allegiance. Turn on Jesus, call him a sinner, and, and line up under us. Do, do this. This is clearly not good for us, so this man can't do this. You know, the t- if you've read the text, you know that he, he doesn't know anything. He just says, I don't know how this happened. I used to be blind, now I see. Do you want to worship him too? It infuriated the Pharisees. But because they would not glorify God in the work of Christ, they demand that this man pick different allegiances. And it's right on the heels of that story that Jesus begins to teach the subject of shepherd and sheep to explain the why and the what have just happened. Do you, you understand? So that's where we get back to the spiritual principle. Sheep always hear their shepherd's voice and they always follow him. Do you want to know why this man couldn't be persuaded to deny Jesus and follow the Pharisees? Pretty simple. Because he heard the voice of his shepherd and he had to follow. There was no excuse. I had to do it. Jesus is explaining the absolute of when God calls people, they got to go. You can't be turned away. You can't be thwarted. So that's where the context of this goes. But Jesus then in chapter 10 starts to talk about the tensions And in verse 1, speaking of Pharisees, he says that there are some who try to get to the sheep another way. The other way always has bad intentions. For the Pharisees, their intentions were themselves. They wanted to be the focal point. They wanted to be in charge of everything. Would not give glory to God. Bad intentions. And, And what happened to others didn't matter. And I hope in your mind right now you're drawing those spiritual parallels from this story to to your life and our life. It is the message of Jesus that he's been speaking from the moment of his baptism. And you, you know the message. There's one way. There's only one way. Some people try to get to it another way. There's only, there's only one way. I am the door, he says in verse 7. He says, I'm the good shepherd in verse 11. And he says in verse 1, the one who climbs in another way, he calls him a thief and a robber. Can I just expand our understanding? I think Jesus has in his mind those religious leaders, uh, chapter 9. But can I expand our understanding to any other way is a thief and a robber? Every other way other than Jesus is a thief and a robber? And you know that already, don't you? We don't use terms like that. We don't see it like that. But get away from whatever it is you pursue other than Jesus, and you know it rips you off. You know it's a thief and a robber. You know it has bad intentions. Have you ever followed the wrong leader? Ever? And had your heart broken? Thieves and robbers. Have you ever tried the religion of self-improvement only to fail at such a level that you can't fix it and you know you can't fix it? Thieves and robbers. You ever tried denial? Like, oh, okay, what I'll do is I'll just put up my force field on this God thing. There is no God. There is no Jesus. He is nobody. I have nobody to worship, nobody to submit to. I'm just going to deny the whole thing exists. And yet what gnaws on you on the inside is a reality you can't explain. It's the reality that you were created with. You were made by God for God, and you keep trying to deny God, and you're left with this gnawing angst in your soul. It's thieves and robbers. Denial doesn't get you there. You ever chase satisfaction? Like really chase satisfaction? I just need to be happy, focus on me. What happens to people who have a lot? They're never satisfied. People will have more than you'll ever have. 
says there's nothing there. Have you ever followed the crowd only to find out that the crowd is lost? Thieves and robbers. All ways other than Christ are thieves and robbers. There's only one way that won't kill you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life to all who follow. There's only one way. Jesus says two amazing things here. He says, the sheep listen to his voice and he knows them by name. All of them amazing statements about how close he is to his sheep. How deep this relationship is. It speaks of intimacy and relationship. When uh, my boys were young and uh, we would be in any, any crowded, busy space. If we were in the mall, if we were in a gym, and, uh, or if we were at summer camp and there were hundreds of kids screaming and yelling, music blowing at, you know, 150 dB, whatever it was, if I went, if I whistled, like prairie dogs, they would all go, whoop. Every one of them, didn't matter where they were, didn't matter how far away, they'll tell you this, they would all look up and look at me for, for two reasons. One is they were familiar with the whistle. But they also knew the who behind the whistle. They knew dad was calling. And that's the exact picture that, that Jesus is planning in the minds of a disciple. When the shepherd speaks, the sheep hear his voice like peri dogs. They all go up. They all see it. They all hear it. There's intimacy there. There's relationship there. He goes on and says that, uh, that the shepherd calls his sheep by name. That gets really personal, doesn't it? I think it does. Um, I, I also read in, in some of this uh, first century shepherd uh, stuff and some commentaries that what was common in the day because of the length of time that shepherds had their sheep is they would name their sheep. And they would typically name their sheep based on characteristics the sheep would show because all sheep are different. I didn't know that. And they have personalities too. You know, there's one that was always last in line. Come on, slowpoke, or whatever, whatever you'd call them. It's kind of like naming the seven dwarfs, you know, sleepy, grumpy. What, what do you think the shepherd's name for you is? <laughs> Mr. Intense, Mrs. Control, right? All, whatever, it's serious. The shepherd knows you so intimately. He has a name for you. It's not judgmental. It's based on how you're shaped, of which he made and where you walk in like, you know, fragile feet, like, I don't know, he knows that, and there's probably a cute name for it, you know? I, I, I think that's fascinating, and I think it speaks wonders and volumes about how close he is to us. The point that I don't want you to miss is that Jesus knows us. You've heard it said, and this is not preacher talk, he knows you better than you know you. He does. He knows what you're afraid of. He knows what you think you can't live without. He knows. He knows what's on your, like, unwritten list, what scares you to death. He, he knows what you're feeling. He knows your dreams before you have the guts to even turn them into prayers. He knows that stuff. Whatever's, like, lingering in the back of your mind and you just, no, oh, can't say it. He knows what you've done, all of it. He knows what you're going to do. He, he knows what you're capable of. He knows your days. Like he knows the day when your life will be today. That's it. He counts your days. He knows your desires. He knows your needs. He knows your sicknesses. 
He knows the broken things and the broken hearts you carry around. He knows where you refuse to believe. He knows where there's this log jam like you can't go, you don't want to go. He knows. He knows um, everything. He sees you finished. Not like when you die, but when you're made new, when everything, all the sin that's in the way of full worship is out of the way, and you are just with him. He sees it all done. He sees you covered. You are righteous in, in his robes. He sees it all. He knows everything. He wants things you don't have the, have the brains to want for you. He knows all the particular ways you're shaped and all the ways you're going to react to things. He knows. He's a shepherd who's so close to a sheep, and he has a name for every one of you. I love that. If you're a little skeptical on this knowledge, look at verses 14 and 15. This is mind-blowing. This is also a sermon I don't have time to preach. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. You want to know how well? Look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. How well does Jesus know the Father? Perfect, eternal fellowship unseparated relationship, perfect union for all time and eternity. And Jesus says, just as I know the Father and the Father knows me, my sheep know me and, and I know them. Jesus isn't given to exaggeration. He tells the truth. You want to be won over by something? This good shepherd, he knows you. A lot of us spend our time propagating an image we think the good shepherd will be attracted to. But he knows. He gets around the edges. He sees behind the curtain. He goes, I like that person. I want to know that person. I died for that person. Not the one you wish people would like. We, we live in a world, and I'm winging it here now. Um, we live in a world that would love more than anything to just be known for something, and it doesn't even have to be true. Pictures aren't true, blogs aren't true, statements aren't true, and it really doesn't matter as long as people think it's true. That sells. Jesus knows us. Let, let me hurry to the next couple things. Jesus, the shepherd, the good shepherd, provides for his sheep. Look at verses 7 to 10. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus here calls himself the door. Again, if we go back to the first illustration about the corrals, the different types of corral, this one now is him referring to the first one. Out in the wilderness, out in the desert, where they're eating grasses, um, shepherds at night would bed the sheep down in places where there'd be natural borders, an outcropping of rock or bushes or sage or whatever, but there wouldn't be a gate. There'd be no way to make a gate at night, so the shepherd became the gate. The shepherd would lay down in the, in the way. And the only way in and the only way out was the shepherd. Are you getting this? He was the door. Okay? The shepherd would make himself the gate. And I hope you see um, a spiritual reality in this. The only ones in the sheepfold are his sheep who only get there by coming through the shepherd. That's what Jesus is saying. They're mine. They came through me. 
Verse 9 tells us, just to expand on just his provision, through him is salvation and out of him is pasture. The, the word pasture is just another way to say the shepherd provides. And what does the shepherd provide? Good question. Verse 10, abundance. I have come to give life and life to the abundance. That is how he describes what he provides. So let me ask you this question. What comes to your mind when you think about abundant life? The promise of verse 10, what, do you, what comes to your mind? If he says, I've come to give life and life to the fullest or life abundantly, what, what comes to your mind? Most people start to calculate things that equal abundance, right? They'll, they'll start going, well, if I had, if I had what they had, if I had what I think I'm missing, if they would just start calculating things on a list. But I just told you a little while ago that most people who have way more than you do get to the end of having all the abundance and said, well, there's no life there either. The word abundant is actually a word that means exceedingly, very highly, beyond measure, a quantity so abundant you can't calculate. It's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The idea of what God gives those he loves him goes over all the edges. It spills over the edges. So what are we talking about? The abundant life is overflowing life with God. That's what the abundant life is. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, growing in your knowledge of the Son, and resting completely in his sovereign love for you. That is the abundant life. It's all the abundant life. I, there's a word that I wrote down um, that I think works, and it needs some help, but it works. I call it the carefree life. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians don't struggle or have moments where they don't know what's happening and they're afraid and all that kind of stuff. What I'm suggesting to you is this. The closer the sheep get to the shepherd, the smaller those issues get and the more carefree your life is. If you really know he's good and you know he loves you and he knows what you need and you know he has the power and authority to do all things, if you really get that in your soul, then it doesn't matter what circumstance you end up facing, carefree. Your job isn't to fix it. Your job isn't to put it back together. Your job isn't even to understand it. You need to understand him. And there's simple phrases we use to understand him. Basic, you're good and you love me. Everything else, I'm leaving with you. That is the carefree life. That is the abundant life. That, in fact, that's what people do drugs for. That's why people buy stuff. They're looking for the end of it to be carefree, and it is never carefree without the creator. Do you understand? Let, let me finish with this. So Jesus knows his sheep, and he, he provides for sheep. Here's the last one. Jesus loves his sheep, verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as a father knows me, and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
this charge I have received from my Father. In the first five words of verse 11, um, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. The last eight verses of this paragraph, he tells us why. And if you were paying attention, I read something and there was a phrase that went bing, 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 bing. Five times, four verses. Verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. Here's why I'm the good shepherd. Because I lay down my life for you. Let me just say this, um, and I need you to hear it. Real love isn't a concept. Real love is not sentimentality and it's not warm, fuzzy feelings. That is not what real love is. Real love is life exchange. That's all it is. That's all it will ever be. The reason why we're talking about how to love other people because ultimately when it gets all the way down to the bottom, we are exchanging our joys and exchanging our life and our wants for someone else. Jesus, the ultimate example, exchanged his life in glory for suffering that we deserved. He laid down his life, the ultimate life exchange. So what we've been saying from the very beginning of this series, what we've asked God to do with us, but let me just state the obvious. There is a huge, huge chasm between our version of life exchange love and his. Here's what the scriptures tell us in Romans 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to focus, okay, at the mind-boggling part of this passage. I, I spent last night with my grandkids, my, uh, one of my granddaughter's first birthday, so it was just chaos and fun, you know, frosting and kids. It was good. And, and I love them, you know, and certainly I would die for them, but they're cute, beautiful, wonderful, lively young girls, right? And so there's everything winsome about them that would make me go, I'm, I'm for it, I'm in it. But now you've got to just set that whole picture of dying for someone else aside because there's nothing cute or sympathetic about anybody in this room. There, there's absolutely nothing lovely or worth lovely, uh, loving about anybody here. And I don't want to offend you, and I don't know if this is your first time, but what I'm trying to tell you is the why the good news is good is because of how bad our condition is. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing lovely in us. God, from his holy position, sees the sinfulness of man, and it ends it right there. If there's no help, if there's no savior, if there's no rescuer, that's it. You can't be winsome enough, although people try. That's religion. I'll work my way. I'll pray my way. I'll church my way to God. And God says, you don't even understand how holy I am if you think you can fix the problem yourself. You're bankrupt and you're dead, unresponsive. You don't desire me, dead in your sins. While you were still sinners at war with God, Christ died for you. Now, picture the exchange of life. It's totally radically different, isn't it? Here's the truth. Just picture this. Every one of us was born into a world with this stupid, smug look on our spiritual faces. Oh, we stand with our fists in the air, shaking them in the very face of God. That is the person Jesus died for. That's the only person that exists. We're at war with his control. We're at war with his word. We're at war with his very existence. 
We are actually a people who have earned his wrath, a people who have earned his hell. That's the truth. That's what makes the good news so amazing. Here's what it says, but God, Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. That's love. That's the picture of love. That's why he's the good, good shepherd. That's why he, he is that for us. Verse 18 is absolutely critical to understanding how this is possible. He says, I have authority to lay it down. There is no salvation without his authority. He has authority over death and over life and over salvation. It's his world. It's his gospel. It's his salvation. Which should create in us like a real sense of confidence. Because he has authority, it'll happen. It'll definitely happen. He says in verse 16, I've got sheep from other pastors. I got sheep all over. He's referring to those non-Jews, us. Here we are now, 2,000 years later. We know what he's doing. He's, he's calling his sheep from all tribes and tongues and calling them to his one leadership. But I want to anchor in us as we close, really, the certainty of all this. Just, just go through the linear list. The shepherd died for his sheep. The sheep will come when he calls, and he will save them. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I know this is going to push back on maybe some of our cultures, some of our histories, some other churches that we come from or that preach, but I would just tell you, uh, just try to change your mind of this good shepherd and how certain this whole thing is. Jesus isn't a sympathetic character tenderly imploring people to consider allowing him to be the shepherd of their life. That is not our shepherd. Our shepherd is a king who calls a sheep and they come. That is the gospel. And you want to know why? Because he loves us to death, literally. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us today to celebrate Jesus to understand deeply and truly how good he is, how true and fair he is, how much he knows us and how much he loves us anyway. God, where we're walking in fear and insecurity, I pray that we'd lean into the good shepherd. Help us love him like we've never loved him before. He is ours and he is beautiful. We pray in Christ's name, amen.